Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. What I wanted to get into then, we went on the bunny trail last week and I want to start getting, uh, just flush it out a little bit before we get back into Romans. And it's the idea that under Calvinism, your prayers really don't matter because you're not going to change God to do anything. And so we talked about how Calvinism relegates prayer to just simply your duty. It relegates prayer to just simply uh, gratitude. But what Calvinism does about prayer is it guts prayer of supplication. One of the definitions of prayer is not just simply to praise God, it does, and you're to do that, but there's an element in prayer, a major element called supplication, where you ask God for things. Well, if I'm a Calvinist and I'm asking God for things, then in their schematic, in their theology, I guess, if he answers your prayer, he was gonna answer it no matter what. It was gonna happen no matter what, whether you prayed or not, it was gonna happen. And if he doesn't answer it, he wasn't going to answer it to begin with, so he shouldn't have even prayed. So it relegates prayer and the aspect of supplication to an effort of futility. What's the point? It's just like the evangelism. What's the point of evangelizing if God's going to call the elect and that's it? So then we came to the, the idea that, okay, so then if we know God knows all, and has foreknowledge, which is part of his omniscience, then how does prayer under a free grace or traditionalist or mediated view of salvation, how do we view prayer as affecting what God does? Because we obviously understand the Calvinist version is wrong. Because that's like dealing with Zeus from the Greek gods and that, you know, you're a product of the fates. You can't change anything. It's all a destiny set for you. So then we come into Christianity and we see that God gives people free will. So how does the free will of creatures and their speaking to him affect him? Well, first of all, let's define what prayer is. Prayer is our ability to speak to the triune God. Okay? How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. So the way it works is God speak to us through his word, and he can also speak to us in pressing things on our hearts and whatnot. But the primary vehicle is the word. How we speak back to God is through prayer. So basically, prayer involves a relationship with him. That's the basis of a prayer, is you have to have a relationship with the creator. So that should tell us what prayers he answers if an unbeliever is praying to him. So you have to have a relationship with him you have to acknowledge who he is and understand him. You have to do supplication, ask him for things, and then you, you are actually on the third part of prayer is you're conversing with him. You're conversing with him. That's what prayer is. So that being stated then, when you start seeing the conditions for prayer, you start realizing, okay, there's certain things that God expects people to do before they actually go before him. And conditions need to be met in order for him to answer prayer. So the way you want to think about it in prayer is the way the Jews were taught to approach God with the tabernacle or the temple. 
they had to meet all the conditions to be met in order to do the sacrifices to worship God. I mean, you know all those ins and outs. You couldn't have any blood or soil on you. You had to be clean. You had to have have, uh, mikvah. The sacrifice has to be unspotted. I mean, it's just ad infinitum, the rules and regulations before you went into that temple. And before you even went you know, past the court of the Gentiles, and before you went past the court of the women to, to the section where the men were, and then past that, only a high priest could go. So what that was teaching Israel is you don't approach me just willy-nilly. You approach me the way I want you to approach me and do exactly the way I say to approach me. And then, as you recall, in the tabernacle or the temple, prayer was symbolized by what in the temple or the tabernacle? Do you remember? It's the incense. So the prayers of the saints, of believers, are represented by incense. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. So that's how he used prayers that are done the right way. If they're done the right way and the conditions are met, then that prayer is a sweet smell to him. So what are some of the conditions that need to be met? What are these? Uh, Again, it's not to be legalistic, but I mean, it's obvious in Scripture that he lays things out of how we are to pray. And then we'll get to this idea of how much do our prayers affect them. Because if you don't meet the conditions, your prayers are what's called ineffectual. He doesn't hear them. Okay? So let's think about this. Jesus says when you pray, he taught the disciples how to pray, call it the Lord's Prayer, but he gave a template in how to pray. And I'm not saying all your prayers need to be in the exact line of the template. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying he did give a template, and this is how you pray. So the first part of the prayer is the invocation. So you start your prayers off with an invocation. Our Father, that's the invocation, who art in heaven, that's an invocation. So when you address God, one of the things you'll see in Scripture is you must, according to Scripture, not according to me, address God in the proper way. Just to get into the door. So your invocation has to be proper. Is there any prayer modeled in the New Testament, where you pray directly to Jesus? No. Is there any prayer modeled where you directly pray to the Holy Spirit? No. What you will see the Scripture advocate, I mean dozens of passages. Father. Father. So the one person of the Trinity that you're supposed to address in your prayer is the Father. So when you see the Pentecostals and the Charismatics start addressing the Holy Spirit, that is a prayer that's not going to be answered. Now, some will say, well, Stephen seemed to have said, Lord Jesus, receive me to you. But that wasn't a prayer. He actually saw Jesus and was communicating with Jesus directly in the vision before he was stoned. So that's not necessarily a prayer. That's a conversation with Jesus. So what you will see in all the prayers of the New Testament, which is modeled off of what Jesus said, and they said, teach us how to pray. The invocation is, Father. Now I want you to think about that. Oh God, 
who, what God, when you, they pray in the Senate and they pray in the House and they pray over, you know, uh, you know, these politicians and stuff and they don't properly address God the Father specifically, that's not a proper prayer. The other backside of the prayer in the invocation is you must end the prayer with the authority that allows you to approach the Father. And what is that authority that allows you to approach the Father? It's Messiah, it's Jesus. That's why in order to have a proper prayer, you must pray in the Messiah's name. In Jesus' name, because that's the authority that gets you past the veil as the high priest. So when these knuckleheads say, Amen, and they don't pray in Messiah's name, or a woman, like that other joker did the other day, you remember that? What a clown. It's not a prayer that's going to be answered. I know that seems like, well, that's like technical. And Well, I'm just telling you, that's what the scriptures show. So if I'm going to model my prayer, and I want my prayers to be answered properly, I'm going to address the Father in the name of the Son. That's a simple thing, but I don't understand Christians leaving out Jesus' name. I don't get that. Why do they do that? Because when he says, when you pray, he said specifically, he gave a command, you pray in my name. You're not going to the Father through anyone else but me. So we start that off. The second thing is you must sanctify God in your prayer. What does that mean? You set God apart. What does that mean? It's that before you start asking for things, and again, this is a model prayer. Before you start asking supplications for things, you must highlight or or emphasize a particular aspect of the attributes or nature of God the Father. And it might usually be in concert with your supplication. Why do I need to do that? Why did Messiah model that? Before just asking for things, acknowledge an attribute of God that goes in line with what you're asking for. Why would he say that? So you're going to ask for financial help. And so, God, we, I know you provide for my needs. Why do I say that before I ask him something? Instead of just asking him. I am showing him that I know who you are. I know you're the provider. And I acknowledge that you're the provider. Therefore, I am asking you to provide for me. So first, what Jesus is trying to show us is that the Father wants you to at least acknowledge that he has the, that power in whatever area you need the help in. Yes, if you want to ask for something, then please acknowledge that I have the power to do this. Don't just come in here willy-nilly asking for things when you won't even acknowledge that I have the nature to do. I own the cattle on a thousand hills and that I can't provide for you financially. Of course I can. I want an element of your trust and your knowledge of me. Because we have a relationship here, he's saying. And if you don't know who I am, then why would you ask for, for things that you don't even know if I can provide or not? You see what I'm saying? If I don't know that passage... My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ. I know that's a promise of God. That's part of his nature. That's part of his character. So if I don't acknowledge that, or I'm ignorant of it, willfully ignorant or whatever, then what's the basis of me asking for that? So anything you ask for 
is based on relational information that you're asking for things that you know what he says and what he does in those areas. That way you don't ask amiss because you're asking with knowledge, theological knowledge. So there, there is why God must be sanctified before you ask him something, if that makes sense. Okay, so then he goes, um, and then the third aspect, before you even supplicate, then he wants you to go to, into the kingdom aspects. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm getting ready to ask you something, but I have to, I want to make sure, Father, that what I'm asking is according to your kingdom program. That I don't ask something out of your will for your kingdom program. The kingdom program is eventually to sit Jesus on the throne of David and rule and reign for a thousand years. If you start asking for things that go counter to that, then that prayer will not be answered because you're not thinking kingdom-minded. Let's get an example of that. Let's say you're a Christian out there and you've never been, it's never been revealed to you prophecy. So you don't know where all this is heading. So um, you guys do. So let's play that someone is ignorant of prophecy and they don't know that everything's racing to the tribulation at this point in time. Okay. And so they're just ignorant. They've got their fire insurance, but they don't pretty much know anything else past that. So they'll start asking, God, please, you know, that's how I addressed it. It's wrong. Uh, and know how I jumped through the supplication. Please, please return our nation back to its roots to the 1950s or the 1940s or whatever era they liked. And get and return our nation back to that. Oh God, we pray this. Amen. Okay, there's a lot of problems in that prayer. But the one thing they're not understanding is they want the United States to return back to something they think is the good old days. The problem with that is, prophetically, a third of the Bible says... We're going in this direction, and you're praying for that direction. You are actually praying against the kingdom program. Because here's the deal. We are not to pine over America 1950. We are to look forward to Jesus ruling and reigning in the kingdom. That's what we go forward to. And so basically your prayer would be shaped by the kingdom program to be something of this effect. God, if this gets us closer to the kingdom, then so be it. Whatever gets us closer to your son ruling and reigning on that throne, I'm for it. Now that's a prayer that might be a little bit difficult because you have to give things up. You have to give up your program and how you want things to be more kingdom program focused. So if America has to get out of the way for the global government, so be it. Yes. Because our goal is to get Jesus on the throne. 
Not you and I are going to get it. But right now what's happening is God is putting his enemies as a footstool under his feet so that when he does come back, he rules and reigns and all his enemies are subdued. So believe it or not, right now, a kingdom-focused prayer would be, hey, it is what it is, man. If this gets us closer, I'm willing to watch this whole thing go into the garbage can. If it gets me closer to the kingdom. Now, I know that doesn't sit well with a lot of people, but when he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's what you're praying in effect. Okay, so that's the third element. Then you go into personal uh, supplication. Give us our day, our daily bread. Lord, meet my needs according to your will. Whatever my needs are, you meet them. Whatever my family's needs are, please meet them. And you have to be okay with understanding the difference between a need and a want, a a wish, hope, uh, how you would like your life, or how you would like this, or how you want your kid's life to go, or how you want your grandkid's life to go. You have to give that up and say, Lord, just meet their needs, whatever they need, is appropriate for them, then, then I pray that will be done. And so you're asking for your needs to be met, and he does promise you he will meet your needs, but you have to then conform your needs and your children's needs and your family's needs to how he supplies it and not get mad. Because a lot of people don't like how he supplies their needs. What you'll see when God supplies your needs is he'll give you the right amount at the right time, and that's it. He will not give you more. He will not give you less. He will not do it on your time. He will do it on his. And so when he does meet your need, understand it will be at his time and it will be at the right proportion of what you need. Now, why is that important to understand? That he's going to give you the right proportion. When God's meeting a need, he's not going to give you less, because he can meet the need, so he's going to show you he can meet the need, but then he won't give you too much past it, because he doesn't want to spoil you. He's a perfect father, he knows exactly how much you need, and if he, know, he knows if he goes past a certain point, then you will become a spoiled brat, and you will expect that, and you will expect more, and you will get too comfortable and you won't trust. So let's say he gives you more toilet paper than you could have and you have a year's supply of toilet paper. Then what will happen is you will lose trust in his area of supplying your toilet paper. So he's going to give you just the right amount. Okay? Whatever that amount is. Whether it's money or what. Yes, there's a lot of waiting, isn't it? And that's a hard one. That's a very hard one. Then you go into the other aspects of the prayer, and he goes, um, you, there's a part of where you have to confess your sins. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. So that's First John 1, 9, where you confess your sins, right? So there's an element of that. And then the last element is for spiritual warfare. So that's the model prayer. So there's elements in there at the end about spiritual warfare. And it says, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. God doesn't lead you into temptation. What the phrase means is, give me the strength not to fall for temptation, not to succumb to temptation is what that passage means. Help me not fall into it is the idea. So part of that is part of spiritual warfare. Okay, that's the template. 
And I'm not saying you have to have all the elements, but you can see that there's certain things you got to have in your prayers. Now, then we get into our personal conditions. The personal conditions that all of us, no matter what, have to have. Well, the Bible outlines about 13 of them, and I'm just going to take them off really quick. Okay? These conditions have to be met in order for your prayers to be answered. Sincerity. Your prayers have to be sincere. Well, what do you mean by sincerity? Well, have you ever prayed a fake prayer? One that you just didn't want to pray? You were not sincere about it? He doesn't listen to those. He knows you're faking it. There are several passages that talk about this. Uh, Job talks about this in Job 16, 17, that his prayers are pure. Psalm 145, 18 says that those who call upon you call upon in truth. And then Jesus will castigate the uh, Pharisees. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. So sincerity of prayer means that it's got to be coming from your heart. It means that you have to have the right intentions. And if you have the wrong intentions, it's not going to be answered. The second thing for the condition of prayer is reverence. You can't come before the Father in rash ways, just barreling through your prayers. You have to come before Him in reverence. And if you don't, that's a prayer that's not going to be answered because it's your attitude that we're dealing with at that point. You're irreverent. And He's not going to answer that. The third thing is humility. You have to be humble when you pray. If you're not and you're prideful, pride doesn't get answered. Submission to the will of God. If you're praying and you're not willing to submit to the will of God and you're not willing at the end of that prayer to say your will be done like the Messiah did, and you're praying that I want this and I want it now, uh uh-uh, not going to happen because that's not an attitude of submission. It has to be one of submission. The next one is obedience. Obvious. If you're disobedient and you're living an immoral lifestyle as a believer, you're not going to be answered. Obviously. So obedience is a condition. Earnestness is another prerequisite. The idea that you're praying fervently and you're earnest in your prayers. That it's just not like something that you say and then you go on about your day. You're earnestly seeking Him. Earnestly bringing up those conditions before Him. He wants to see that. And then the other condition is abiding in the Messiah. Abiding in the Messiah is what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in me, my words will abide in you. And whatsoever you ask, it shall be done unto you. The idea of abiding means to be so adjusted to Jesus as to have uninterrupted fellowship with him. There's nothing breaking your fellowship with the Lord. There's no hidden sins. There's no issue. You're in complete fellowship with Him. So you have to be in fellowship. Forgiveness is another one. Forgiveness. And we're not talking about, we're not talking about like, um, that you have to be forgiven in the ultimate sense for salvation. We're talking about fellowship forgiveness. But you have to be willing to forgive someone that's offended you. Because if you're not, then your prayers are not going to be heard. 
you actually have broken fellowship at that point, and then in, in a, that condition, you can't be heard. Repentance. You have to be in a state of repentance. Well, that, that implies that you're repenting of what you were doing. Okay, so if you're in a state of repentance, that means you have stopped doing what's causing the problem. And so, obviously, to be obedient, you have to be repentant, so that the two go hand in hand. Righteousness and godliness is another prerequisite. And the fact that you're living holy, you're living godly, your prayers will be answered. That's why the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Because of righteous living. Boldness is another condition. We can go boldly before the throne in light of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And what boldness is, is that you have confidence going before God. Now, explain the opposite. Going before God without boldness, without confidence, means that you don't really trust whether or not He can do certain things. You don't know about His power. You don't know about His promises. And you're just not sure. And so you go in there kind of sheepish, sheepishly into the throne room and you're asking for things that you already doubt He's probably going to do. So you're not bold. And again, boldness is not going in there and marching, you know, you're marching in there and giving your orders. It means I have confidence that my Father can do certain things. Okay? Fervency, obviously, is another one. They keep at it. They don't give up. They don't stop. They just keep, keep knocking. Father, please. And you just keep at it. They keep at it. And so, those are some major ones. The other ones I want to point out real quick is the confession of sins needs to have happen. Watchfulness is part of praying. Watchfulness is being spiritually alert to things. It means not being in a Laodicean state. It means that you're on top of what's going on, not only in the world, but on top of what's going on in your life. That you're not sleeping spiritually. Spiritual slumber means you're not paying attention to what's happening around you. And so there's a lot of Christians like that. Faith, obviously, is a prerequisite, right? Um, And in that sense, you have to have faith in who God says He is and what He will do. There's another. That's another prerequisite. Now, let me give you some principles real quick. Does anyone need any any more of those? Everybody? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do continue that because obviously there's something deeper going on. Maybe there's a nicotine addiction or something like that. But the, the issue then becomes, where is your heart? If your heart is, man, I messed up again. I'll get, you know, I'll repent and try this again and whatever. That's a repentant heart versus... I ain't stopping. I ain't stopping chewing. This is my God-given right. This is America, you know, that kind of thing. And, and bless God, you know, uh, I'm not going to stop this addiction. I can stop any time, right? You know, they'll say that. But it, you know, I choose not to stop. 
You're seeing an unrepentant heart at that point. No, no, no. You have the right attitude because the right attitude always wants to do the right thing and repent. The unright, the, the, the unrepentant attitude doesn't care. So if you didn't care, that's the problem. And that's why that, that person's prayer is not going to be heard because they're, they're not in a repentant mode. Yeah. A couple things before we wrap up. Other hindrances to prayer. Lack of concern for others. A lack of concern for others will hinder your prayers. Now, primarily it's referring to in the Bible, the lack of concern has to do with other believers in the church. Not so much people outside in the world. The primary emphasis is on how you treat other believers and if you are concerned about them. If you lack concern for other believers in general, he's not hearing you. Because your attitude's wrong about your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Idolatry is another thing that will keep people's prayers from being heard. What do you mean? Well, anything that someone puts first in their life is idolatry. If you put your own family ahead of Jesus, your prayer's not going to be heard. If you put money, your job, your career, it doesn't make a difference what it is. It's not necessarily a wooden, uh, you know, or a, a metal idol. It's whatever you put ahead of Jesus. If you put things ahead of God, you have an idol and you're practicing idolatry and that won't be heard. You just won't be heard. The other thing is for men, a lack of love for your wife will cause a man's prayers to be hindered. Now, what you'll see is a twofold aspect that the man is supposed to know their wife, treat her as the weaker vessel and protect her. So let's flush that out because a lot of people are not quite clear on that. In order, men, to know your wife, it requires something of you. Okay? The term means you need to have intimate knowledge of your wife. You need to know her core values. You need to know what makes her tick, what ticks her off, right? And that's an easy one to figure out. You figure that out in the first year of marriage. But then, obviously, you got to go deeper than that, and you have to understand where she's at spiritually, where her growth process is. You have to understand her hurts, her pains, wants, desires, the whole package and the way you do it, guess what? It is not through ESP. If men think they can mind read, we're infamous about mind reading. I know what she, she likes. I'm good. No, 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 you don't. You don't. You don't know. You have no clue. And guys go through their whole life thinking they have a clue. And then the women say, he never understands me. And, and it's just, what do you mean I don't understand you? I know what you're saying. You've never been in the counseling session when this is going on, so this is what they're going through. Guys, what is required of you to know your wife so that your prayers can be answered is you must ask them questions. You have to talk to them, yes. You have to talk to them. And listen, and listen. Not, not just watch the, the sports and, I know it sounds cliche, but believe it or not, 
you can become as a guy kind of this this lunk and the spiritual lunk I call them and these spiritual lunks like they think they're they got it figured out and they're so clueless about their wives and what they don't realize it's hurting them spiritually because every prayer they fire doesn't get past the ceiling because God's saying you don't even know your wife what makes you think I'm going to listen to anything you have to say you better go back and fix that situation before you bring it to me now why 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 pick on the guys why pick on the guys why is Peter picking on guys all of a sudden I mean come on isn't this like a isn't she she has to know us too ah uh-huh, you got it that's why the guy is chosen did you hear what he said The man is the spiritual leader of the home. He bears the burden and the responsibility to know things. Not the wife, because the wife is not the spiritual responsibility in the home. It's the guy. That's why Peter's picking on the guy. And so, typically the man prays for his family. That He's usually, like in the the patriarch days, it's the, the man of the family that was the high priest, so to speak. Like Abraham was the high priest of his family. And, and they, they, Job was a high priest to, of his family. And so it's hearkening back to that, that Jewish context, to where the man bears that responsibility in the home, and he is likened unto a high priest for his family. Therefore, he has to know the information. Not his wife. He does. And by the way, you can expand that out into the kids. The man is responsible to know what's going on with the kids' lives and not relegate that to his wife. And say, you just take care of them. I don't want to mess with them. No, no. The spiritual head has to get into the business of it. He has to know what's going on with the kids. Because if he doesn't, what happens? You are opening up your family to be targeted by Satan. So when the man decides to check out, not pay attention, not get intimate knowledge of his wife and his kids and know what's going on, what did we see happen in the garden? Who did Satan go after? He goes after Eve because she's unprotected, because he's checked out. He doesn't want to have intimate knowledge of what's going on inside of Eve. Adam should have been all over that. Eve, what are you thinking? We don't do that. What did Father tell us to do? We don't do that. Don't even have a conversation with that guy. Where was he? Checked out. A big lunk who had relegated everything to Eve and said, you take care of business, you go deal with the serpent. Guess what? That's what's happening in a lot of homes right now is the father is so checked out. He's made the woman have the intimate knowledge and guess who Satan's going to try to twist into a theological pretzel. So guess who introduces false doctrine typically into the family? The mom will the mom will be the one who ushers it in. I can tell you this, after 20 years of watching this, it's true. She'll read a book. She'll read a book. Yeah, Beth Moore, Jesus Calling, or some book, and its lights are on fire. And she comes home with that, and she doesn't realize that in her book is 10% false doctrine. And then she starts practicing it in the home. And before you know it, 
the family goes upside down theologically and they don't know why. It's because Satan used her to get false doctrine into the family and it's got him. And it happens every time. Down to the wire. I've seen the pattern over and over again. So, I know that's more than what you wanted to know, but that's why he says, guys, your prayers will be hindered if you're not doing the spiritual protection you're supposed to be doing. I'm not going to listen to you. Anyway, we'll continue this next time. There's a lot more behind it all. Um, and I hope that helped out uh, with understanding about prayer. Have you still answered the question, though? The theological question still remains. If God already knows what's going to happen, what good is your prayers? Just obedience, duty? Go ahead. No. Jeff? So he's not omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent? What authority are you talking about? Ah, uh, you better you better check your references about where that authority comes from because I think you're you're using a passage that refers to church discipline about authority. We'll get back to you on that. Yes, that's true. True. So that's part of it, conforming our will to His. So, but but can can prayer change? Change the direction of things. But I thought God already knows what's going to happen. So why, how is that going to change anything? This, so, so let me see if I can rephrase this. Are you saying he's already made the decisions? They're already set. Okay. And so because of that, then how does, how does our prayers interact with whatever's been decided already? Because he's outside of yeah. So, I, I know exactly what I mean. I'm not describing it right. So, we pray. We pray and... And, and we're in time. We're in time. Yeah. And he hears our prayers. Uh-huh. And he makes that decision. Yeah. God, how do I describe this? I, I, he makes that decision. You're close. But, but he, he's outside. How do I describe it? He... He knew what that decision was going to be. He knew what we were going to do. He, he, as it, he knows today. Yeah, he knows what we're going to do. Yep. So that decision, he knows what decision he already made. He knows it a thousand years ago. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think. So, <laughs> let me see if I can... So let me, let me pinpoint you down. Is his decisions based on our decisions? His decision, but he, but he, but it would, uh, okay. Based on our supplication, consideration of our supplication, he may or may not do something different. Okay, I got you. I'm thinking that prayer is God's way of changing our minds for our ability to see what's in front of us and moves us to. Yes, that's that's true. That is a part of prayer, but we're talking about the the uh, effic- efficacy, um, the effectiveness of prayer. Not so much conforming our will to His. That's a given. But is is our prayer when it says a prayer of a righteous man avails much? Avails what? What does it change? 
I'm not saying, you know, that's, that's the easy one. It changes us. But what James is saying, there's actually a something positive that happens in, in its, its effect on God. Well, I think prayer, if, if, you know, if we're praying to God for his will to be done in our lives, I think that because we're in the time frame we're in, we learn to trust him more and more. Because we can look back sure. at prayers that we prayed, and we can see as we look back that God has taken care of us all the Absolutely. No doubt about it. But my question comes back to James. He says that if I have a righteous man praying, it's going to avail much on God. It will, it will do something to God versus a sinner praying. So what it, what, what I'm trying to get at is what is that thing? Like a God. How much does it avail? Does it change him? Does it do anything? How? If he's already decided. So you, so what he's brought, he's brought out, and what you're bringing out too, is you have to understand that there's, there's two dimensions going on here. God is in the eternal now, and we're in the space-time continuum. So this is where some of the confusion starts happening. You have to keep your spaces different. God's an eternal being, yeah? So everything that happens to God happens at once. There is no past, present, and future. He is in all of it, right? Because he's an eternal being. But you and I are stuck in the space-time continuum. So if you go from, from God's standpoint, it, everything's already decided. But then we have these free will creatures that are inside of his plan. And he, what he's trying to get at is that God is doing something in his architecture of the fabric of the universe with prayer. I'll just let that sit out there for a second. So let me ask you this question. Is it better to have more people praying or less people praying for you? Why? It's already been decided. The right people praying. The righteous man avails much, right? So you have the more righteous people you have praying for you that have met all the conditions that you just studied of prayer... We don't want, you know, some out-of-fellowship Christian praying for us because his prayers are not going to be answered. So you can put that on the, 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 the Twitter feed or the Facebook. Hey, any of you messing around, I don't need you praying. Some, see, hey, see how, how much traction you get in the next time you put that out there. Anyone out of fellowship, uh-uh, don't join our prayer chat. Yes. So what I'm trying to get at is, if he already knew it, he already decided it, how is that intertwined with your prayer? But would it happen even if you didn't? If it was his will? I mean, Jesus... You do. Right. And same thing with the Lord. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. He prayed for something to not happen. But then he goes your will be done. So the father had already decided, no, this is going to go down. 
you're going to be crucified. This is going to happen. There's no way out of this. So I guess what I'm saying is, why do we have more people pray? Why is it important to have righteous people pray for the individual? And, and, and how does that interface with God already making those decisions? Can God change his mind? He did with Hezekiah, right? That's right. So, based on that, is that in the architecture of the universe, and the way God has designed our space-time continuum, in the architecture, God apparently has built into the architecture the quality and effectiveness of free will creatures' prayers into his equation. But God already knows what he's going to do. Of course he does, but he takes into account the prayers of the righteous into his plans. Even before the foundation of the world, yes. Did he know you were going to pray? Yes. He took that into the equation before the foundation of the world. He already knew how many people would be praying for Ernie in the hospital. He already knew how many people would be praying at a church service. He already knew how many thousands of people would be praying for the United States. He already took that into account. So just because God knows it doesn't mean he's not taking that into account. But I'm telling you, because God's an eternal being, he took that into an account even before you and I were even created. He already has taken note. Now, when we pray right now, we're in the space-time continuum. It's happening right now in our linear fashion. But for God, he's already seen it eons ago that we would pray. Did he take that into account? He sure did. Now, again, he decides based on how many prayers he incorporates, whether righteous you know, prayers or whatever, all that comes into the equation. And then, based on that, he has made his decisions. So guess what? This is what the Calvinists are not going to tell you. God has based his decisions on your prayers at least some of them, to whatever degree, I don't know, but he has incorporated them into his decisions. Now, it doesn't mean that, that you know, when you pray against his will, hey, this is going to happen no matter what you pray, but he has incorporated that and taken in your input. And then he answers that accordingly to his, his wisdom, obviously. Yes. Yes, you got it. Kingdom plan. Goes back to the template. Now, that's where he takes in account the prayers. Okay, my people are in America are praying in 2020 and 2021 for this not to happen. But unfortunately, I'm not going to answer the prayers of my saints because they don't understand that that kind of prayer prevents the kingdom from coming. And so I will, I will not answer that prayer in the affirmative. I will say no. Because what they don't understand is my son needs to be on the throne and I want to put him on there quicker than what they... Because if I held things back, I'm actually holding back my son from ruling and reigning. 
That's, that's definitely, it doesn't matter how many thousands of prayers of a righteous man goes to that one. If you're praying against the kingdom, it ain't going to be answered. That's just the way it is, right? So you can see how the dynamics flow, why it's so important to understand prophecy. Because you're going to be praying against prophecy. In his humanity, he doesn't. In his deity, he does. Based on the thousands of years of praying by the saints, and you see this in Revelation 4 and 5, because the, the, the incense in heaven represents the prayers of the saints, based on that, God is incorporated into, into his programming with the church of how fast the second coming will happen, because according to Second Peter, the church has been able to, he says you have the ability to speed this thing up. Right? It's in Second Peter. And so there's an element that, that we have had a play in all of this. That, um, that we can hasten that day. That we can actually cause it to come quicker. But what is it? Well, it's been going on for 2,000 years and the church hasn't been really good about this. That's why it's taken so long. No, he does. Well, when Jesus said that, that not he goes in, it's in all of a discourse. And Jesus in humanity says, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. Notice the terminology, Son of Man. Not Son of God. When you see the term Son of Man, he is speaking from his humanity. And in his humanity, because Christ has dual, dual, a dual nature, in his humanity, He's not God in, in his humanity. Does that make sense? In, in the nature, you can't, I guess the way I want to explain this is he's the God man, but the God nature cannot go into the human nature and you can't have this blend because then he will cease to be man. And then you can't have the humanity go into his deity, otherwise he'll cease to be God. So the two natures must stay separate, but yet combined, not combined, sorry, wrong word, Yes, attached would be a better word. Attached together in one person, but you cannot have them bleeding over. Therefore, there are times when Messiah gets tired. That's not an element that you would see in God. There's times when Messiah says, I don't know. That's not God, because God's omniscient. He's speaking from his humanity. So in the Olivet Discourse, when he says, the Son of Man... He's speaking about his human nature. In his deity, he has to know because he's omniscient. He does know when he's returning, but his humanity doesn't. Now, I, I understand that that's going to throw you off on tilt because I, it, it makes me tilt because you're talking about the hypostatic union of the Messiah, and I don't know any illustration I could give you to, make you, to help us understand that. Yeah. No, he knew, that's why he's sweating drops of blood. He knew what would go on. But his humanity is now not having fellowship with the Father. You can't say he separates from the Father in his deity. So the only thing that's allowed is, is the separation of the human, human side of the Messiah from the Father. So he's never experienced being out of fellowship, and now he's experiencing it. Well, it's not necessarily a question. It's a quote of Psalm 22. It, it, it is in one sense, 
because he's an innocent victim and he's now being forsaken. And so there's an, there's an element of yes, that's, he understands that, but it's also Psalm 22. It's what he's quoting. And the way the rabbis would quote things, you would quote the first part of the psalm and it would trigger the whole psalm in people's minds. So what, what he's really doing is quoting Psalm 22 to the religious leaders so they can hear Psalm 22 is now being quoted and it appears that the Messiah is being forsaken, but at the end, the Messiah is being vindicated. That's right. It's, it's this, the, the spiritual separation and fellowship in his humanity, if that makes sense. Um, but again, uh, uh, the, when you get into the hypostatic union, man, I'm telling you what, it, it gets to the point where it starts boggling your mind. And I'll just say this. You have to just simply bend a knee to apprehend it. But it not, it's not necessarily required that you comprehend it fully, because we can't. I can't comprehend the Trinity, but I, I, I apprehend it, and I apprehend the dual nature of the Messiah, but I can't fully comprehend it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.